The Athletic. Last week on the pod, we discussed the mistakes made at Leeds United since Marcelo Bielsa was sacked, a man once described as the best coach in the world. After two failed appointments, it's Sam Allardyce, who now has just three games to keep Leeds in the Premier League. Coming up, we'll look at the impact that Big Sam has already had and his blueprint for survival. But will it be enough? I'm Ian Irving and this is the Athletic Football Podcast. You said it would be a tough game, but certainly the last part of that match, does that allow you to leave here with some hope, some positive? A lot of hope, yes. We scored a very, very, very good goal. We end up looking at a 2-1, looking like we may have an opportunity if we pass the ball a little bit better on occasions to get another chance. Ended up with Manchester City playing the game out in the corner, which shows mm. that they got a little bit nervous. OK, joining us for this one from The Athletic, we have Adam Crafton and also our Leeds correspondent, Phil Hay. There's, of course, a big read on The Athletic that both of you have contributed to, simply titled Leeds United, What Happened? Which is quite a question, in fairness. The article, of course, takes us to where we are now with Sam Allardyce in charge, facing up to a real battle to keep the club in the Premier League. We'll talk about Javi Gracia, who, of course, was sacked last week and then spoke to Adam exclusively for The Athletic. But, Phil, if we can focus on... I'm Big Sam for now. Um, what a week it's been for Leeds. We did a podcast last Monday. There wasn't really a sign of this then and everything's changed. Um, how have you found it? The Athletic, after we recorded that uh, that podcast, they sent me to Leicester to rub a neck on Leicester Everton. We said, you know, do a piece on what it's like looking into somebody else's relegation battle with obviously um, more than a passing interest in it, but none of the skin in the game for that particular match. So I did, and I wrote a piece, spoke to Everton fans, Leicester fans. It's quite interesting, really. There was this general theme of everybody saying, we don't deserve it as supporters, but I'll tell you this, our clubs absolutely do. You know, they've they've all walked into this, and particularly Everton, I found that chant to them outside the away end. But anyway, I was packing up at about 10 to 11 when I got a message saying, listen, grass is going, which I think we all expected anyway. It was, it was very much on the cards, but it's going to be Allardyce, and... By the way, I think Orta will be leaving too, Victor Orta, the club's director of football. And and I knew it wasn't a joke because of who had sent it to me, but the Allardyce thing was like a bit of a bolt from the blue because it was the sort of, it's probably the archetypal English solution that, isn't it? Big Sam to the, the end of the season. But I think I probably wasn't alone in thinking that in the context of English football now, 2023, that boat had probably sailed. You know, he'd only had the one job at West Brom in five years. It hadn't gone particularly well. And you wondered if we were beyond the point where anybody was actually going to phone Allardyce desperately and say, can you do this in four games? But lo and behold, that was right. And then Otto was gone the following morning. And it has been another of those weeks at Leeds. Um, but unavoidable in a lot of senses, I think. I think it really did come to a head, as we discussed, at Bournemouth in a lot of senses. The body language of everybody, what was being said, the tone of it all was just wrong. It just smelled of relegation. So they had to do something big. They had to um, They had to take some big calls, and they absolutely have. Yeah, they certainly have. Adam, from the outside, it's almost like watching a, a soap star return after a few years away, isn't it? He's, he's a character. We'll give him that. Like Dirty Den coming back after, from the dead. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, he's a little bit like that. And I, I think Allardyce knows that as well. I think he's I think he's quite self-aware. I mean, when there was a lot of talk about the press conference that he did midweek where he started saying things like, and he almost did it as a, like a stand-up comedy set, is, is almost how he treated it. It was as if he'd given the press officer the week before he came into the room and just said, I'll give him a few headlines and take the pressure off the players. And 
it's kind of what he did, right? He said he's as good as Pep and Klopp and Arteta. He's sort of hit out at the jewelry service that his his mate Sammy Lee, who would be, who would usually be his assistant manager, but can't do it because he's being called at the jewelry service. And it was quite fun. And then the football came on Saturday, and it was almost like a realization that it doesn't really matter who you had standing in that dressing room on Saturday. They were playing the best team in the world, and we're never going to win that that game. And it was also a look at the team. They're not very good. And it's a really, really difficult challenge. So it was a fun week, but it was quite surreal, right? Like, just think of what Leeds were 15 months ago. Like, this team that everyone wanted to watch. Every time Leeds were on television, I wanted to watch them play. And maybe for people in the States that get to watch every game, in the UK, we we get sort of a a couple of games. So, like, Leeds wouldn't be on every week. So when they were on, You'd have to watch them because every game they played was like six goals, seven goals, and it was competitive and it was risky and it was fun. And I think that's what Leeds were grieving as much as anything when they lost Bielsa as well, that that fearlessness and that identity. There was a definite difference between Allardyce's first press conference and his second one. Um, and I think it said quite a lot about him that he's in for a four-game job and in his first week there were two press conferences, you know, in the space of like 72 hours. A lot of said that he was trying to hide in, in the background. But he, he'd been in at 7 o'clock on the Wednesday morning. The press conference was at 4 o'clock. It went on for 45 minutes. And Did he, it? I suppose you have to remember... 45 minutes? Yeah. Wow. It was it was, it was was long. I mean, we... we See, we've all got a load of stamina for that because some of the else's could cruise past an hour, no problem at all. You know, it was and Oof. and he would, with translation, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, with translation, but also he would never get out, get up and walk out at any point. He would sit and he would wait until everything had been asked, and that was always the the way of it. So you know, Allardyce sixty eight now. Perhaps he was a bit tired, you know, a bit weary um, on Wednesday, and I certainly thought what was said on Friday morning, which was specifically about Manchester City, um, as opposed to the the broader story of, of Allardyce coming back I, I think made a lot more sense and I guess drilled down into the detail of actually what he was going to do and how he was he was going to try and try and do it I mean th- there were definitely on Wednesday there were there were funny moments but there were also some weird moments you know the Sammy Lee jury service thing was just kind of odd you know the idea that it was more important for Sammy Lee to come and do three weeks at Leeds than it was to <laughs> keep the criminal justice system ticking over um, but it, I, I think that there was no now that I look at it a week on, there was just no alternative for them. Who, who else were they going to go for that would have been as safe a bet as you could possibly have? And I don't think there is a safe bet, and I don't think this is, this is guaranteed to work at all. But what else would they have done? And I think it's probably saving grace that Angus Kinnear, the, the chief executive leads, knows Allardyce going back to the days at West Ham and, and was able to kind of pitch this job quite quickly. Um, but Adam's right. Once you get to the Etihad, and this is where reality bites, you have the players you have. You can't transform them overnight. But I do think there was a definite blueprint in the game of what Allardyce will want to happen, which is defensively tight as you can. And OK, they're always going to give up chances against City. But hang in, hang in. And then when the chance comes, take it, which is what Rodrigo did towards the end of it. Um, and that seems to me, if it's going to work, that's that's how it will go over the next three games. That's what's going to have to happen. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that blueprint, as we've called it, or you've called it in your piece on The Athletic shortly at Manchester City. But just to drill down on on the detail of the Allardyce appointment, just for a moment longer, Phil, was it, was it Kinnear's choice then to bring him in, the managing director? Allardyce put himself forward back in February when Leeds sacked Jesse Marsh. And I've said several times in the past week, Leeds like to think of themselves as medium-term thinkers, long-term thinkers. Some would say that that 
they've started to look like they've been trying to be too clever on various fronts, but they were never a side who wanted, never a club who who particularly wanted to be going down the route of Allardyce to the end of the season. And it was partly down to this that Arthur left last week. He wanted Gracia to stay. He thought Gracia would would do the trick in the, the games that were left. The board were totally unconvinced by that and, and wanted to change. And it struck me that Allardyce for four games was probably the last appointment Arthur would ever go for in his life. You know, it's just not him. So back at that point in February, Leeds are still thinking, well, we, we can go for Areola um, via Cano. We can have a go at Arna Slot at Feyenoord. Even with Gracia, there was a clause in his contract for him to continue if they stayed up. You know, they were. Um, it, it was kind of mooted that, that he would continue next season had it gone well. But this is totally different. You know, after Bournemouth, it was just desperate. They looked like a side who were gone. It looked like a club who were, were blowing up. So it was very easy, I think, for Kinnear to, to say to Allardyce, this is desperate. We need you to do it. Would you be interested? And it's probably fair to say as well, that Allardyce has reached that point in his life and, and his career where these sort of short hits probably suit him better than, you know, the, the grand old slog of a 46-game season in the Championship, for example. Well, it's like, I mean, Neil Warnock went to Huddersfield for the, kind, for the what, last 15, 14, 15 games or so. Um, and, and he was asked at the end of the season, like, would you stay on and do another do another year? And he was like, no, I'll come back in February or more. <laughs> Or March. <laughs> because, I mean, because they're probably just thinking, you're absolutely quids in. It's a bit of a free hit. Four games, you know, no one's going to come out of that and think Allardyce has messed it up. Even just Saturday, the fact he came within one goal of Man City, people will probably be thinking, he's done all right there. And it's just, I think, it's absurd, but it kind of makes sense at the same time. I mean, the funny thing about Sam is that even actually after Bielsa left the club last year, he was in touch with Leeds saying, I think I could do a job. So this has been going on for quite a long time. Obviously, as long as Victor Walter was there, that was simply never going to happen. But once that kind of buffer of decision-making went up another level towards Angus Kinnear, who's probably fair to say is less of a... He's more of a kind of a football business guy rather than a kind of a recruitment in the modern sense that we would think of sorts of sporting directors, he's more of this sort of buffer between the ownership and the football side of the club. But once it came down to him, it was just kind of Sam Allardyce, Lee Bowyer, Simon Grayson, swimming in far more humble pools, you'd probably say, in terms of from a kind of, if you think of coaches with kind of modern, sexy reputations, it's a very different outlook, I think. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's get into the blueprint then. Uh, at the Etihad, Phil, um, what was the big difference that you saw in Leeds United? They took very few risks. I mean, it was it was a peculiar game because lots of it was like an open training session. And actually, City weren't really killing themselves on Saturday to score 10, even though they, they probably could have done that and, and should definitely have scored more than two. There were long periods of that game where I wondered if the Real Madrid tie that's coming up was at the back of their minds and everybody thinking let's not you know let's not burn ourselves out here because there is absolutely no need I think the way we come to reflect on the City game will depend on what goes on over the next three games if if it goes well for Allardyce if he does the trick and Leeds get out of trouble you'll probably look at it and say that is you know that was a bit of a start for him getting the engine going for what he wanted to do 
I think if they go down and if it doesn't work and if he doesn't get results, we'll reflect on the City game as one where Leeds hardly touched the ball, you know, and, and we're hardly hardly in it. But defensively, you could see what he was trying to do. There was yeah. a big, big gap between line of four and five and then Bamford further forward. And it was a really difficult afternoon for Bamford. And I do think that as it stands, the, the option of playing Rodrigo just seems to be screaming at Allardyce, I think. But... I, I was going back, I was chatting to Danny Higginbottom about this last week. He always gets in touch to chat over Leeds games before he's covering them in the States. And he was talking about, you know, what Allardyce had done previously. And we were discussing the fact that, you know, at Sunderland he'd had Defoe and at Palace he'd had Benteke, Everton he'd had Rooney. West Brom he didn't have any of that. He had Pereira who scored goals from midfield. But by the time he got going, West Brom were already relegated. And it does kind of paint the picture of somebody who can do it defensively, can change a team defensively and improve a team defensively, but still need somebody in the lineup who's going to get one chance, one goal, which was Rodrigo on Saturday. And it did seem to me like the the you know, the kind of framework of what Allardyce will want to happen, low risk, but still, you know, in in a position to win the game if he can. And and this is where, you know, that kind of magnifying of, of Leeds recruitment becomes a huge issue because Leeds needed a centre, another centre forward last summer. I think most people who who watched the club, uh, you know, at all closely knew that, and they weren't able to do that. And you know, they've spent. They obviously, they, they let Rafinha and Calvin Phillips go. They brought around a hundred million pounds in combined for that, just under. And you have this kind of combined around eighty million pounds spend on uh, Brendan Aronson, Luis Sinistera, uh, Wilfred Nyonto, and Jorginho Rutter who came in in January as a club record fee and he started one Premier League game. Between those four plays, you've got eight Premier League goals this season. And this was kind of like the cast of attacking talent that was brought in to replace what Rafinha was, was taking away and also to really enhance that forward line. And that's kind of one of the key issues that will probably cost Leeds their place in the top flight if they were to go down. In terms of the, the setup in training, Phil, what, what have you been hearing about who's been doing what? Because obviously he carefully selected his two assistants in Robbie Keane and, and Carl Robinson. And they were very active uh, on the touchline on Saturday. I was sat just behind uh, the away dugout. Robinson more so than Keane, but they, they seem to be in constant dialogue with Allardyce and other members of the of the, of the bench as well. How do you understand that that breakdown working in terms of who's taking what, who's focusing on what? Yeah, it's funny because every time um, Allardyce talks about Robbie Keane, um, he makes him stand, sound like a bit of a stand-up comedian. You know, he constantly talks about how he's here to make people laugh and this, that, and they Allardyce say quite openly they met at, at Soccer Aid. I don't think, you know, there's a, a long, long working relationship there at all. But Carl They Robinson, met at Soccer Aid? Yeah, that's that's what he said. Right. Um, well, that's that's quite be, an audition, but, isn't it? Playing in a charity football game. Yeah. And, well, this is this is it. But obviously, Keane was a very good striker in his time. And, yeah. and Allardyce had said we'd be working on, you know, finishing, finishing aspects with um, players like Bamford and Rodrigo and others. Allardyce said on Saturday that a lot of the coaching had been you know, had been done by Robinson. You know, that's his role. He was at Blackburn with him. He was talking about the fact that he's more, he sees himself as more of a manager and I think more of a motivator, you know, more of somebody who's going to whip everybody up and, and get them going. But there was a hell of a lot of defensive work from what I'm told um, done prior to the City game, you know, a lot based on positioning, um, tracking players and, and everything else because he said quite openly. And he said in his first press conference, your goalkeeper and back four is our priority. Like it's where, where we've got to start. And actually, it makes total sense because Leeds have been incredibly weak in that area. And I think if you if you, if you you concede as many goals as they are, you will go down regardless. That's the problem. Someone was talking to me earlier about 
the Spurs game and saying Spurs could be on the beach by the time that comes round. But if you're as poor defensively as Leeds have been, Kane will probably score regardless and Son will probably score regardless and others in the team will will do you damage. Um, so he, he could see that. And and from what I'm told, that, that's what the focus has been on. Ilan Melier dropped was the headline, Adam, on the team sheet. What do you make of that particular call? Because Joe Robles had, well, that was his Premier League debut for Leeds. He'd not played actually in the English top flight, I think, for about six years. Um, it's not like he was a a number two that had really been even getting many minutes behind Melier before the weekend. Yeah, I think it's probably a call that had to happen in the circumstances. And Leeds had conceded, I think it was 23 goals in April, which was a record for a team in the Premier League in a single calendar month. Obviously, they had quite a lot of games, to be fair to them, um, in that time. But they did have, you know, what, six against uh, Liverpool, five against Crystal Palace, fours against Bournemouth and Arsenal. And... It's, it's an interesting thing with Melier because Melier was a player that they picked up as a teenager for around five, six million pounds from the French League. They had him on loan first in the championship. He was really good under Marcelo Bielsa. who put a lot of faith in him to play in not an easy way for a goalkeeper, you know, as we're seeing with other goalkeepers in the league to be playing out from the back and being very high with your position. It is, it is a challenging thing to do. And, and he looked pretty comfortable doing that for quite a long time at Leeds. He's still only... Is he 22, Phil? 22, 23. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's still a really, really young footballer by goalkeeper standards. But I think what's happened with him is that Leeds under... Whether it's under Bielsa or Marsh or Gracia or Skubala or even Allardyce, like, that they have not been good defensively. And there's been a lot of spaces. And I think as a goalkeeper, he's often been very exposed... Um, at times, that's made him look fantastic because he's, you know, it gives you the opportunity to make a lot of great saves, and he's had to be very brave with his positioning, with how he comes for set pieces. But I think there's a point at which you're surrounded by such mediocrity from a defensive point of view that your confidence becomes affected, that your own levels become affected, and I think that's kind of what's hap- what's happened with Melier. You know, this is a goalkeeper that last summer Leeds were thinking they weren't going to cash in last summer because Phillips and Rafinha were being cashed in on. I think the plan was always actually if he has another season as good as his previous couple, he could be another player for 30, 40, even reaching 50 million pounds that Leeds could potentially sell. And you had clubs like Tottenham, Man United and PSG really really watching it. But this season has has been really poor for him to the extent to which you wonder if they go down, like what would they actually get for him now? Because he's almost, the way that football works and the way that opinions in football work just valuations fluctuate so much and reputations fluctuate so much. So it's a difficult thing for Leeds because he would have been one of the assets in the squad that they would have seen as immensely sellable whether they stay up or go down. And now all of a sudden you're thinking, well, what what do you actually do with him going forward? Adam made a really good point to me about this um, before the City game, which was that if you listen to what Allardyce was saying about Melier in his first press conference, he talked about, yeah, he's good, I rate him, but he's been making a lot of mistakes. He's you know It hasn't been going particularly well for him. And then on Friday morning, he said he hadn't picked the team by then or certainly hadn't told the players. But again, you know, this will be my biggest decision. What do I do with, with my with my goalkeeper? And Adam said, and I think he's he's right, you you don't say that if you're thinking of sticking with Melia. If you're thinking of sticking with Melia, you pretty much say, listen, he's our number one, he'll he'll be in goal. It's just not what you what you do. So we were all very much expecting Robles to be to be in the team. On um, on Saturday, you said it to me before the game in the press lounge, didn't you? That that's where you expect the big change to be. 
Yeah, and, and it just didn't it just didn't feel like you would have handled it in that way if you were then going to say to Millie, actually, do you know what? Having thought about this and having kind of doubted that I might put you in the team back on, <laughs> you know, against, yeah. against City, I think I think it was it was the right move. Valuation wise, I still think he's worth a lot of money. I mean, he's he's due to play at the um, under twenty ones European Championship this summer, and after that, the expectation is that he'll move up to the the full. France squad. They've kept him in the under-21s because they've got this coming up and because they've got other goalkeepers. But it's certainly true that you can't be out of form indefinitely um, and, and there'd be no consequences. And he has suffered from the way Leeds play and the, you know, the way the team's set up. I, I did a turn on BT Sport before Fulham um, a few weeks back and Rio Ferdinand was using some examples of goals they conceded and he was talking about how quickly in transition Leeds get cut open you know, and, and how quickly they get done. Lose the ball centre circle, opposition half, and within about two seconds, two, three seconds, they've conceded. You know, it's just so, so easy to get at them and, and always has been. And Melly, he's up over 100 Premier League appearances now, but he's, he, he must be virtually on 200 goals conceded. It's almost two a game for any goalkeeper, but I would imagine even more so for a young goalkeeper. That must just be like water on stone effect, you know, just drip, 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 chipping away at you. And eventually it's got to have an effect. Another interesting aspect, Phil, to the team sheet, just quickly if we can. Um, um, Robin Cock, I understood, missed a, a bit of training during the week. So obviously Christensen was moved inside for that. But Adam Forshaw in midfield was a, another change as well. And it was just his third Premier League start of the season that the Etihad. And packing the midfield like that is different, isn't yeah. it? That That's quite a significant change. Yeah, it's like an unashamed strategy, isn't it, of take as many risks and, and mitigate the risks as much as you can and, and try and keep things tight. I mean, Forshaw is a really interesting player because Bielsa loved Forshaw and used to say to people in private, he could play in a Champions League team, Forshaw. He's he's that good. And what he does, the way he plays, would, would be tailor-made for, for that level of football. The problem with Forshaw is he's hardly been fit since 2018. He, he broke his, his foot in Bielsa's first pre-season. And it's just been a constant battle for him ever since. You know, more extreme than I've seen with most players. I interviewed him about a year or so ago and it's a complete nightmare for him trying to get over this problem that he had in his groin, his, his hip. And even this season, he's, he's missed a lot of games as well. But that probably points to a bigger issue that leads, which is that they've never really replaced the skeleton or the spine of the team that Bielsa had. It, when you're looking for people to fall back on and rely on in, in fairly desperate moments, it's still... Cooper and Dallas and Ailing and Matthias Cleek is gone now. But people like Forshaw as well. And there isn't a kind of fresher skeleton there. There isn't a fresher spine of people that, that you can depend on. And I think it, they just haven't been able to turn this squad over in the way that they needed to to make sure that it was still competitive two years down the line. They've, they've been caught out badly on that front. Adam, I said at the top that Marcelo Bielsa had been described as the best coach in the world. And that was actually by Pep Guardiola around one of the the games that, that Leeds United had against Manchester City. The change to Sam Allardyce is stark, as we've talked about. Obviously, they've gone through Jesse Marsh, um, Javi Garcia as well. But just to sort of underline this point, really, and round off um, this section of the podcast as well, is Sam Allardyce who Leeds need right now? Is it as simple as that? I don't think anyone at Leeds at this moment is saying things like, you know, if Sam keeps us up, then he's the person that we want to take the that we want to take the club forwards. No one's really saying if we go down, we want him to stay and try and bring us back up. People are viewing this as the way to end the current project. The current project basically being, you know, this kind of this project that Victor Water was leaving and so was leading, I should say, until he left the club last week and just to try and get to the end of the season and survive in the Premier League. And then in the summer, whatever happens with regards to 
ownership. I think the reality is if a Graham Potter or Brendan Rodgers had made clear to Leeds they were prepared to take Leeds on with four games left of the season and also to say to them, even if we go down, we'll I'll try and bring you back up, they'd have gone and got a Graham Potter or Brendan Rodgers. But that wasn't happening. So you're then left with who's prepared to do this for four games and Anadice was the best of those was the best of those options. And do Leeds have any more confidence after this last week, Phil, that he can be the man to keep them in the Premier League? There was optimism after Saturday, but I do think it was based on that Rodrigo goal. And I think if he'd been really objective about that game, it should never have run as close as that. You can see why Guardiola was so unhappy about the penalty, because it did invite, you know, what could have been a really, really costly collapse for them. They were they were absolutely hanging on in injury time having completely dominated Leeds all the way through. So to go back to what I said earlier, I think if it goes well from here, people will look at this as a good start. If it doesn't go well from here, all people remember is that Leeds had only just over 100 passes completed. They had 19% of possession, hardly hardly involved in the game at any stage. And you'll probably see it in that context. But if it does go well, they'll probably think that it was kind of big Sam Light in the fuse. Last week, while Phil was speaking to Sam Allardyce in that first press conference, Adam, you were doing a very different type of journalism. You managed to get hold of a manager who'd just been sacked in Javi Gracia. It very, very rarely happens. The article's up on The Athletic if people want to go and read it. But how on earth did you manage that? A slightly weird weird thing where um, his agent had been sending around a statement that he wanted media in England to put out, which was basically Javi Gracia kind of defending his record and thanking fans, the kind of statement that you normally see go through the NMA. Yeah. The the agent was sending it around, and then it's an agent that I've known for a few years, and he just sort of said, he fancy speaking to Javi today? Yes, please. I would I would love to say that I had a huge part and there was some sort of <laughs> genius to all of this, but that was basically the, ext- the extent of it. We then had a discussion about whether we I sort of go to Spain to do that because he'd already flown back to Malaga that day, but we were kind of of the view that Javi Gracia had been in and out of the building at Leeds so quickly that kind of people would almost forget about him by this week in some in some ways if you were to wait until Monday, Tuesday after, you know, Big Sam's had a game and then if Sam would have won that game, the whole conversation moves on as well. So we just did it as a as a phone call that night. And he was, you know, he was reasonably interesting. I think he was a bit bewildered by the whole experience. You, know, you have to remember, Leeds now have had four managers in the last 15, 16 Premier League games. I mean, it is, it is, that, is yeah. that is a crazy situation, even by by Premier League standards. That stinks of this season, doesn't it, to be fair? It's been one of those years. Totally. You know, I think seven of the bottom nine clubs have changed their managers. You have this real fear from everyone about being relegated. I think at Leeds, that's particularly... The case, because it's a strange one at Leeds, because on the one hand, they actually shouldn't fear relegation. It's nothing like 2004, right? When they went down in 2004 and you had all those administrations and relegations to League One and just a complete financial collapse, that should not happen with Leeds this time, right? They Their commercial revenue is strong. Their, con- their players' contracts are sensible. You know, the contracts will reduce by minimum 50%, maximum 60% for every single player. I'm sure some players will also have clauses in their contracts, which means they can probably be sold if they go to the championship. That's quite common as well. So they are they are well protected and they will also get parachute payments when they go down to the championship. So that should be around £100 million up to across the three-year period. 
So Leeds, you know, there's no reason they can't do what Burnley have done, what Sheffield United have done, what we've seen Norwich and Watford repeatedly do over the last few years. There's never been a better time in some ways to be a reasonably popular Premier League club going down to the Championship and recovering. The stress for Leeds comes from the fact that they are, if they were to stay up, they're about to probably go ahead with the full takeover, which would obviously give the club from Andre Radrizzani to the San Francisco 49ers. But that is all subject to Leeds staying in the Premier League. And there is huge uncertainty around, one, whether that happens if they go down, and two, whether the price will substantially change because it goes from being Premier League asset to a Championship asset. So that's where all the stress comes to from Leeds' point of view. But when you step back from it, as long as they get the football decisions right, this shouldn't be a big issue for Leeds. They, they've been sufficiently well run for Leeds to be able to function. The problem is the fans probably have very little faith at this point because of the last year that the club will get the football decisions right. I just wanted to ask Adam something about um, the Grassy interview. More journalistic thing this more than, than anything else. It was it was a fantastic piece, and it is really extraordinary to be speaking to the manager the day after he's he's been sacked. He must have been exhausted after Bournemouth, and obviously he's been on a flight back to to Malaga. Do you think he actually wanted to do it? Uh, it's interesting because I know I know that he's he doesn't do that many interviews in general, and I think I think he probably had a, a he probably had a view that you know look I've been sacked after. 11, 12 games and my reputation therefore is is affected by that and I need to probably get out in front and, and, and make some points and also Leeds were pretty, you know, sometimes sometimes managers are sacked and it's a really difficult relationship between the manager and the club. Like, you know, imagine if Jose Mourinho had done that the day after leaving Manchester United, right? It would have gone down very, very badly at Old Trafford. At Leeds, it wasn't like that. People kind of liked Gracia. Weirdly, like I mean, even if you speak to sort of the players and coaches, like the training sessions were apparently quite good and the method was quite good. And there was kind of a view that if he'd had a, a full pre-season, Leeds might have gone on to have quite a good time under him. But he just wasn't the person to, to, to get a grip of things once the club had started conceding a huge amount of goals and all of that kind of thing as well. I mean, it's a strange thing. I mean, he's, he was defending his record in the sense of first six games, they won three games and drew one took 10 points from their first 18 and then they play against Crystal Palace they're 1-0 up on 40 minutes and he's, he's saying to me you know, at that point I'm looking at the Premier League table in my head and we're 12th we could even go on and have a top half finish this is like three weeks ago right and then and then all of a sudden Leeds then collapse in the second half against Crystal Palace they lose 5-1 then they lose by six against um against Liverpool and they just never recovered from that and he was interesting in terms of his insights about the squad because on the one hand Leeds have this fantastic resale value within the squad as we say because they've not bought a player aged over 25 in the past two years which on the one hand gives you a very sustainable business model on the other hand I think he felt as a coach that squad needed more experience in key positions particularly when he lost Tyler Adams through injury in that holding midfield position where he just didn't have cover really for that position really at all and he described these sort of young Leeds players as like boxers that are taking punches and they're trying to get back up but they can't get they don't know how to get back up and sort of caught in this vicious cycle and I think that's probably true because I don't see a team there that you know people sometimes fans can start to think oh the players don't give a shit they don't care 
you know, they're not trying. I don't think that's the case with Leeds. It was almost like there was this thing that was happening to them and they didn't know how to stop it. And it felt to me like they'd gone into a time warp back to the end of the Bielsa days when they're getting hit for sevens and fives and fours and they're getting caught on the transition. And and, and I think that's where they were caught out. But look, I mean, Gracia, obviously, it's humiliating for him to lose his job after 11 games, after 11 Premier League games. But I think so much of this will probably come back to, you know, when you ask most people at Leeds, what's the one decision that's really defined things? I think people won't even say it was the fact they sacked Bielsa. It was the the decision to replace him with, with Jesse Marsh and give him as much time as they did. I totally agree. I, I just found the immediacy of the interview really interesting and actually thought it was quite a, a good and clever tactic to... I thought it was quite valuable to actually have that perspective and point of view immediately after he'd gone because a lot of managers wait for weeks or months to say anything. And if Grassi is speaking in September or October about what's gone on at Leeds... Well, it, it would be Harvey who? Like, I don't think it would pays attention at all, no. Um, and it was, and it, it just struck me as he must have flown back thinking, I could just do it going to the pub, really. Um, but it, but it's. I wonder if other managers might look at that and think that's actually quite a good way to handle it when you go, is to, to you know, like you say, get in front of it and and say to people, this is how I saw it. This is what happened. This is what's happened. This is what you you need to do. And and I totally agree. As time has gone on, I've more and more felt that this is less about the decision to sack Bielsa, as unpalatable as that was for a lot of people, than it is about the decisions that were made after that sacking. And so many of them have been wrong. And football show many, many times that if you get this many decisions wrong, you end up in this position. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is my opportunity to offer an open invitation to any sacked Premier League managers. If you do want to get things <laughs> off your chest, we're always here uh, with the Athletic Football Podcast and you've got friends here and you can talk to us about exactly what happened. But yeah, fascinating. If you want to read Javi Gracia's interview, of course, with Adam, it's up on The Athletic now. Lots of great stuff on Leeds at the moment, including the blueprint for survival that we talked about earlier that Phil has written and the piece about exactly what happened in that journey from Bielsa to Big Sam that both Phil and Adam contributed to. Remember, if you're not a subscriber, you can sign up now for $1.99 a month for the first 12 months by going to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But Phil, Adam, thank you both very much and thank you for listening at home as well. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. The Athletic.